Good morning and welcome. We're grateful for your presence today. Last night we had a sweetheart banquet banquet here at the building, and uh, it was a great success. We appreciate so much Lana Henson leading in that, and we appreciate all the young folks that served. They did an outstanding job, and we appreciate we appreciate all the help with that. I know Jared and Anna had a big part in it, Lana and a lot of folks, and so we thank you for that. It's a great meal, great night, and we're so grateful for you. I want to ask you to turn with me to today in our scripture to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 in just a moment or so. Again, we welcome you. We're grateful for your presence. We hope and pray that the time that we are together will be beneficial to you and that you will profit by being with us today. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Many years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, and he said, speaking about Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. It is true that Jesus gave himself for all of us. He, as the Hebrew writer said, tasted death for every man. Not only did Jesus die for me and for you, but Jesus died in my stead and in your stead. In other words, he took our place. And so I want you to think with me for a moment or two about what Peter says in verse 18. And really in this one verse, we find a ton of information being conveyed. I want to begin by first of all talking about the fact that Christ was our substitute on the cross. Listen again to what Peter said, For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. And so here, Peter is simply saying to us that Jesus took our place. I want to begin this point by first of all talking about the fact that on the cross we have the provisions of God being outlined. As a matter of fact, we have the satisfying provisions of the cross. The Bible tells us that God is holy. In order for God to deal with the problem of sin, he needed a perfect sacrifice. And so God's answer to sin was Jesus. You remember in Romans chapter 3 when Paul said, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God? In verse 24 he said, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 26 the writer said, that God could declare His righteousness, that He might be both just and the justifier of Him who believes in Jesus. And so when we talk about the scales of justice, in order for God to balance those scales of justice, 
it required his son going to the cross on our behalf. He needed a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus fulfilled that role. And then I think about the strategic planning of the cross. Have you ever thought about how God orchestrated the redemptive plan? God had a plan in place before he ever created the human family, before he ever laid the foundations of the world. John in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 talks about the lamb who was slain, listen to him, before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul points out that every spiritual blessing known to man is in Christ. But he said that God had a plan in place to redeem us before the foundation of the world. That plan involved the coming of Jesus. Now, if you go back with me for just a moment to the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 3, you recall God had said to the first couple, they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. In chapter 3, the Bible tells us that the serpent came on the scene. Ultimately, he deceived Adam and Eve. And thus, as a result of their sin, they began to die physically, but more importantly, they died spiritually. So in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God begins, God begins unfolding, unveiling his redemptive plan. He announces the fact that there would be a promised seed. That promised seed is Jesus, the Messiah. In verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3, the Bible tells us that God clothed Adam and Eve with skins. And I think inherent in this verse is a reference to a blood sacrifice. In Genesis chapter 4, you remember Abel brought forth unto God from the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof, a blood sacrifice. And then, a little bit later, God would say to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that in you shall all families, all nations of the earth be blessed. Now, Abraham was the father of the Hebrew nation, wasn't he? And God said to Abraham, that ultimately he would have an heir. That heir, you and I know him to be Isaac, wasn't he? Abraham and Sarah had a child in their old age. You think about these people long past childbearing years. Bring a child into the world named Isaac. And God had told Abraham that through his lineage, all nations, all families of the earth would be blessed. So you think about here's this promised child, this promised son by the name of Isaac. And so we come to Genesis chapter 22. And God makes an unusual request of Abraham. The Bible says that he tested him. He said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and offer him on one of the mountains that I will tell you of. God would require Abraham to offer this child of promise, Isaac, 
in the land, in the Mount of Moriah. And so you begin reading the narration of that text. And the Bible says they take a three-day journey. They reach their destination. Abraham says to those who are with him, you stay here. And he said, we will go and worship God and come back again to you. So they make that track. And Moses tells us that here's Abraham and Isaac. And you think about here's Isaac, this promised child, this son that Abraham and Sarah had been longing for, looking for, this child of promise. And now they're on their way to offer sacrifice to God. And Isaac said, I see the wood, I see the fire, but where is the offering? And Abraham said unto his son, God will provide. You remember that? And so they come to the appointed place and they place the wood in order. And Isaac is bound on that altar. Abraham then reaches out his hand with a knife ready to slay Isaac, wasn't he? And the Bible says an angel called out to Abraham. As a matter of fact, two times his name is uttered. Abraham, Abraham, lay not your hand on the lad. And then what does the text say? The Bible says that there was a ram caught in a thicket. You remember that? Caught in a thicket of thorns, and that thicket of thorns surrounding the head of this ram. And the Bible says that Abraham offered that ram in his stead. That prefigured the coming of the Lamb of God, didn't it? And you recall Jesus wore a crown of thorns, suffered, bled, and died for us. In Exodus chapter 12, God is about to deliver his children out of Egyptian bondage. And so, in Genesis chapter 12, God institutes the Passover. He tells the children of Israel that they are to take a lamb, a year old, without spot and without blemish. They are to slay that lamb and then they are to put the blood on the sides of the doorpost and over the lintel of their homes. Why was that? Because God said, in the night that I come through the land, when I see the blood, I will pass over. God had said he would destroy the firstborn in Egypt, beginning with Pharaoh all the way down. And so in instituting the Passover, what God was saying is, if you have the blood of this lamb in the appropriate place, that blood, that lamb will be the substitute for your firstborn. And then we come forward in time. You remember John the Baptist? When John saw Jesus coming from afar, do you remember what he said? Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. You think about all of the sacrifices 
all of the animals that were slain in days gone by. A type of that ultimate sacrifice that would later come through Jesus. And so we think about the strategic planning of the cross. This was not by accident at all, but rather it was the design of God. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter said Christ has suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. So what about the substitutionary purpose of the cross? What was the design of the cross? The design of the cross was that Jesus would die in my place, in my stead. Do you remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2? Listen to what Peter said in verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us. He said, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was guile deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, threatened not, but committed himself unto him who judges righteously. And then Peter said, who his own self, listen to him, bore our sins in his body on the cross. That we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness. What Peter is saying is that Jesus took our place. He went to the cross in our stead. Now we talk about Christ dying for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul said the gospel in a nutshell is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It's true. Galatians 2.20. Christ gave himself, as Paul said, for me. True. But Jesus took my place, didn't he? He went to the cross in my stead. So you and I have a lot to be grateful for. And what Peter is saying is that Christ was our substitute on the cross. He took your place. He took my place. Second thing I want you to see in our study very quickly. First we think about his substitution on the cross, but then his suffering. Christ suffered for us on the cross. Two ways. First, I think about the emotional suffering of Christ. When you think about the emotional suffering of Jesus, the Bible is very clear that Jesus suffered a great deal mentally, emotionally, as he faced the cross. First, the agony of Gethsemane. Do you remember when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane? And he is wrestling with the fact that he is going to ultimately give his life as a ransom for sin. And he is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is praying to God. As a matter of fact, the record says three times he bowed his head, prayed to God the Father. And he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That is that cup of suffering that he would ultimately drink. And so he said, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Luke tells us in chapter 23 that Jesus, being in agony, prayed more earnestly. 
Jesus is in agony in the garden, isn't he? He is literally pouring out his heart to God the Father. The Hebrew writer said, Who in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard in that he feared. So here's Jesus. He's praying. He's offering up supplications to God. He's crying. He's weeping. He's thinking about what's before him. The agony of Gethsemane. And then I think about the agony of Golgotha. Jesus is on the cross and he is writhing in pain. And of all of the things that could have disturbed him the most emotionally, no doubt the most difficult aspect of the cross was the fact that he would be separated from his father from whom he had never been separated. The Bible says that Jesus cried from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus bearing the sins of the human family, bearing my sins, bearing your sins. He died in my stead. He died in your stead. Did he suffer emotionally? Yes, he did. Tremendously. But what about physically? Did Jesus suffer physically? Let me ask you to turn with me for just a moment to Matthew chapter 27. In Matthew chapter 27, you recall Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate said three times, I find no fault in this man. Pontius Pilate knew that Jesus was an innocent man. In an effort to have Jesus released, he offered Barabbas because they had a custom. They would ultimately release to the multitude a prisoner whom they wished, the Roman Empire, allowing this to happen. And yet the people, rather than choosing Barabbas, and Barabbas is spoken of as a notorious prisoner, he is identified as a thief, an insurrectionist, and a murderer. Now you think about here, here is Barabbas on the one hand and Jesus on the other. Pilate in an effort to appeal to the people. And I think he took this rogue character by the name of Barabbas, the son of Abbas. Thinking. There is no way they will choose Barabbas over Jesus. I mean, what was said about Jesus and his character, his nature? Well, the Bible says he did all things well, according to Mark's account. John said, no man's ever spoke like this man. Here is Jesus without sin, without fault, and yet they've trumped up these charges. This trial is a farce, it's a mockery. Pilate, standing before the people, asked them, whom do you want me to release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. And so then Jesus is put before the people, and Pilate asked this question, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And here's what they said, Let him be crucified. If you want to know how much hatred the Jews had for Jesus, it's summed up right here. They hated him. 
Do you remember what John said about Jesus? He came to his own. His own received him not. Verse 26. He released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The scourge was a terrible form of punishment. As a matter of fact, historians state that they would take a whip, a three-thonged whip, leather whip. That whip would have embedded in it pieces of glass, bone, metal. A Roman lictor would strip the one to be scourged to the waist. He would stand to the side and he would begin to lacerate the back, the legs of the victim. Historically, medically, it has been said that those who suffered the scourge were at the point of death. And Jesus was scourged. They would literally flay a person when they scourged them. And so here is Jesus being scourged, his back lacerated. No doubt, tremendous blood loss. The excruciating pain that he would have experienced during the scourge, not sure I can understand it. So he is scourged, and then the Bible says the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, gathered the whole garrison around him, and what did they do? The Bible says they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. So he is scourged, he's stripped. They place a purple robe on him, or a scarlet robe rather, and the Bible says... In verse 29, when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, a reed in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So they've scourged him, they've stripped him, they sneer at him. You think they really believe that this is a king before them? Do you think they really believe that they were in the presence of deity? They're questioning his sonship. They're questioning his sovereignty. And then verse 30, the Bible says, then they spat on him. Can you imagine people with such hatred and anger spitting in the face of another, spitting in the face of Jesus, and yet that's what they did. So Jesus is scourged. He stripped. They sneered at him. They spat upon him. The Bible says they struck him in the head. When they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. So you think about his treatment before Calvary. And then Matthew speaks of his trek to Calvary. Look at verse 32. As they came out, they found a man of serene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. Now you think about Jesus. He's tired, he's weary, 
He's been deprived of sleep. He's been slapped, beaten, mocked, scourged. The loss of blood, very significant. In a weakened condition. They placed the crossbeam on the shoulders of Jesus, and that crossbeam would have weighed about 125 pounds. And the Bible says he fell beneath that load. And so they got Simon to carry the cross. And by the way, that wasn't Jesus' cross. It was my cross and your cross. You remember what Peter said? He bore our sins in his body on the cross. And then the torture of Calvary. Luke said when they came to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And so they take Jesus and they drive nails through his wrist and feet. Historians state that many years ago they found an individual that had been crucified. They found the remnants. A seven-inch spike placed through the heel of the individual. The Romans had perfected the art of crucifixion. They wanted to crucify their victims because they believed that this was the best way humanly possible to make an individual suffer in his or her most intense manner. And so they crucified Jesus. He died for us. There's a third thing I want you to see very quickly in our study. And that is the fact that Christ saves us by the cross. Look at verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins. The just, that's Jesus, for the unjust, that's us. That he might bring us to God. Why did Jesus go to the cross? To bring us to God. In other words, Jesus went to the cross so that we might have a relationship with God. Go back to the Garden of Eden. When man sinned in the garden, what happened? Well, physical death made its entrance into the world. Spiritual death entered the world. Man was separated from God, wasn't he? Animal sacrifices would never atone for the sins of man. They were offered in anticipation of the coming of Christ. Jesus, however, went to the cross so that he could make the full and complete payment for sin. What did that require? His body and his blood, didn't it? And so Peter said, look, he went to the cross, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. You think about two parties who are estranged. They're alienated from one another. And so you have a mediator who comes and brings about conciliation, reconciliation. He brings the two parties together. That's what Jesus did. He brought God and man together. Where? At the cross. Jesus paid the price for our sins. He went to the cross and died for us. So he has redeemed us by his blood. When you go back to the cross, the thing that stands out is the fact that Christ died for our sins. He shed his blood for us. Peter said that we were redeemed not with corruptible things, but with incorruptible. By the precious blood of what? Of a lamb. 
without spot, without blemish. You remember that Passover lamb back in Exodus chapter 12? Children of Israel observing the Passover every year. And yet Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for whom? For us. So we have been redeemed by his blood and we are reconciled in his body. Paul would write in Ephesians 1 verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. In Ephesians 2 16, Paul would say that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body under God through the cross. Jesus reconciles people today where? In his body, the church. So when we obey the gospel, we enjoy redemption and we enjoy reconciliation. Christ died for our sins. He died that he might bring us to God. The Lord Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to have a relationship with God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So, Where does that leave you? If you're here today, I want you to think about this for a minute. If you're here today and you have never obeyed the gospel, you are saying no to the greatest gift known to mankind. I've thought a lot about people that have great talent, great ability. You ever see somebody who has tremendous intellectual ability I mean, they could, they could do so many great things. They have a mind that's like a steel trap. They are analytical. They have the ability to comprehend so much. And you think about, here's somebody who has all of this ability. And then to see that person utilize that ability, it's a great blessing. Flip side is, you ever, you ever known somebody like that who had all that ability, all that talent, and they squandered it? You know, ability is useless if you don't use it. By the same token, if you have this great blessing and you don't utilize it, it won't do you any good at all. Shame on you. So Jesus went to the cross for us. He died for you. A lot of folks have had to wrestle with the question, Posed by Pilate centuries ago, what then shall I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? That is the question of this hour. What are you going to do with Jesus who's called the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one? You might have a lot of things. You might enjoy a lot of blessings in life. But if you say no to this blessing, you've said no to the greatest blessing you will ever know in human life. So, what would you need to do to become a Christian? You remember on Pentecost Day when Peter preached the gospel, pointed out that Christ had died, but God raised him up? He said, let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And the Bible says they were cut, pricked in their hearts. And they cried out and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? Here is exactly what Peter said for them to do. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. 
The text says some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel that day. God added them to the church, Acts 2.47. You can have that same blessing today. What they did 2,000 years ago is the exact same thing we have to do today. So if you haven't done that now, now is your golden opportunity. Paul said today's the day of salvation. If you're here today and maybe you're living unfaithfully, did you know that you're trampling underfoot the Son of God and putting Him to an open shame? Did you know that? That you're trotting under feet the Son of God by how you're living. Crucifying Him afresh. You don't want to live like that. You don't want to live estranged from God. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Won't you come as we stand and sing?